Well, amen, let's go home, actually. <laughs> like, oh, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. What a joy it is to uh, just see, these, I got to get an up front and, and personal view of them being baptized. But praise God for that act of, of faith and their desire to take that step and able to sing songs to the Lord. Uh, what an encouragement it has been so far. Uh, now we're going to open up God's word. And um, if you want to open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy, we'll be in chapter 3 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I would just like to pray again and just ask for the Lord's help as, we, uh, as I proclaim his scripture here this morning. If you want to bow with me. Oh God, my heart is, is filled with joy uh, thanksgiving, and just being able to see uh, these three uh, take that step of baptism, be able to sing songs to your name, Lord. That is our, our desire. Like, oh, Lord, give us more grace. Oh, oh, Jesus, to be able to trust you more. And I pray as we open up your scripture here this morning uh, that you would speak to us by your spirit. Oh, Lord, I have nothing in and of myself, but through your word proclaimed, Lord, we know it won't return to you void. And so I pray you'd give us open ears, open hearts. I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd uh, grab hold of our wandering thoughts. May the things that happened in this week pass, the things, may we're looking forward to help us to hear your word and by your spirit transform us. Convict us, Lord, those who are here who do not know you, may you give them eyes to see their need for Jesus Christ. May you bring them a place where they would say, yes, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to surrender my life. Oh, Lord, I, I pray even as we preach this word, this, this list of, of traits for elders, that you would form these things in us. God, we can't do it. We can't strive for it. You can do it in us. And we're asking that you would so your name would be glorified and honored in greater ways. I pray this all now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Just want to, as we get going here this morning, uh, for the, the next few weeks, we're going to be continuing on in 1 Timothy. We're going to spend two weeks here in, uh, in chapter 3, 1 to 7 looking at kind of the call for biblical leadership. And then as we head into December, we're going to have a kind of a change of focus. Uh, we're not always maybe going to do that, but this year we will. We're going to spend th that time in Matthew chapter 1, in kind of preparing our hearts, thinking about the coming of Jesus Christ. We celebrate on, on Christmas, right? And so we're going to be in 1 Timothy. We'll pause that, and we'll kind of change our focus and go into the book of Matthew, looking in parts of the Old Testament. So that is upcoming. But for now, uh, today we are still here in 1 Timothy. And just in thinking how to introduce this message, uh, think about this with me for a second. The story of Christianity is an amazing one. And I won't take it so far back, but you think... At some point, there's a crucified Savior. The Savior of the world hung on a Roman cross is our Savior. Just that statement, like maybe you're used to it, you grew up in the church, we understand this language, but that's so contradictory. A crucified 
Savior. And that's how it began, right? He died on the cross for our sins and took our shame and was buried and rose again. Amen. And then who is supposed to take the message of him being risen again, him paying for sins, believing in him, and you could have eternal life? Well, it was this ragtag group of disciples. The fishermen. No offense to fishermen. There was, there was a tax collector hated within the culture. There was like a radical political guy, Simon the Zealot. And you're like, okay, it's on you. It's on you guys. Now take the message. And if you know church history, we know then on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came upon the believers, not just the apostles. 120 gathered. And then Peter preaches this message. And over 3,000 people believe in Jesus Christ. What if that was it? What if that was the story? Like I meant, what if God told us nothing else and he didn't have to? Believe. Believe in Jesus Christ. And it's like, well, what, what should we do after? Just believe. Just follow me. Can you imagine 3,000 people and there's kind of like no order, no nothing? And like, well, just keep believing. Just keep going on. That's not the way it works though, right? That's not the end of the story. Our God is a God of order. And, and what he did, he didn't leave us to himself. He, we see in the New Testament, he said, okay, believe and be baptized and then gather together in a local expression of that, the local church. And he said, hey, the local church is not just like, I don't know, every time you gather, you kind of just wing it, you get together. He said, actually, I want to have elders who are going to bring leadership to what you're doing as you gather together. And that's what I hope you can see that here this morning. Today's message, though, is about the leadership you have in the local church. It's, it's less about what elders are to do, but way more about who they are to be. But I just want you to see, like, God has not been silent. He didn't leave us to ourselves. He had kind of specific instructions that we are to follow. So that's what we'll be looking at here this morning. If you want to stand with me as we read God's word we're looking at 1 Timothy 3. We'll be reading 1 to 7, but just covering this morning 1 to 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. May God bless his word to our souls this morning. You can have a seat. So 1 Timothy 3, we're looking at 1 to 3. I want us to see the call to godly leaders. And, and there's a godliness to follow. So then just thinking, if you haven't been with us, where in the letter are we? Paul, writing this letter to, to Timothy, He's in Ephesus, and he's dealing with leadership issues within the church. 
And in, in chapter one, he already dealt with kind of false teachers and what was going on there. In chapter two, he begins and he says, first of all, now he's addressing things within the gathering of the church. He addressed prayer as a first importance. This is the thing he wants us to know. Then he, he addressed reasons why prayer could be kind of stifled for men and women. Then he addressed women teaching. We looked at that the last uh, two weeks ago. I, you do not permit a woman to teach. And we talked about why that is. And still in the same veins, it's like, well, if women can't teach, who can teach? Well, he answers that question. Biblically qualified elders. And so again, it's talking about the context of a local church. I just want you to think, though, as a listener, who is this for? You think, well, hey, I'm not an elder. Like, it's, it's not for me. But for sure, for sure it is for us elders. It's for me. It's for Roger. It's for Dave. This word is for us. And we need to hear it. It's for the church. It's for the church. You need to know this is the standard. This is the biblical standard that we're being held to. It's not like, oh, just like keep that under the rug. Like, no, we need to proclaim it. We need to all know it. It's for future elders, future leaders, that we would see the clarity seen here in Scripture. And really, I would say, and I, and I want this, it's for everyone who wants to grow in godliness. Because as you look at this list, well, I'll keep going through it, it's like, no, I don't want that. I don't think you can really say that to any of them. Except maybe when we get to the one able to teach. And so really, it's for all of us. I hope we can see, we can hear, and hopefully it'll stir in us a desire to grow in that. But even before I start, I want to just frame it within the gospel and grace. I don't know about you, as I'm going over this whole list this whole week, I can say to every single one of these traits, but the grace of God. None of us, there is no self-made Christian, man or woman. It's a work of the Spirit that we would desire Jesus Christ, that we would desire to worship God, and then that he would start to work his fruit in us. So first, I just want to acknowledge that God builds each one of us. God builds this person, this leader. And secondly, again, as I said, I, I hope we can see this kind of call to godliness, and it would drive us to prayer, that each one of us would pray, God, form this in me. God, form this in us. So that is, I think we're all called to listen to this word here this morning. So first, I want you to see there in verse 1, I want you to see the office and the function. The office and the function. It begins, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. This saying is trustworthy. Paul already made this statement in 115 of the letter. He'll say it again in 4.9. It's like anytime you see that this saying is trustworthy, stop. And again, underline. I encourage you, underline in your Bible. Like, what is he saying? What's important? We should take note. If God in an inspired word says this saying is trustworthy, we should like, wait, what is he about to say? We should take it to heart. Again, this is still on the subject of the church. It moves from teaching on women now to teaching about who, the leaders of the church. This is interesting, friends. You know what? There's more written about church leadership in the New Testament than there is about baptism and communion. I don't have time to, to take you to all the places, but God's like, I don't want you to miss this. 
It's not just come up with your own way to do things. God's like, actually, I have a way for you to walk in it. There's great clarity here. So the saying is, trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. First, I just want to think of that office of overseer. We don't, I don't use that language. I haven't been using that language. Overseer, like someone watching over someone. It can also be translated bishop. Again, we don't use that, that language of bishop. But I, what I want you to see, the office of overseer is the same thing as elder, and it's the same thing as pastor and shepherd. And they're all using the New Testament to refer to the same office. I'm just going to show you that quickly because you're like, oh, I don't think so. I think there's a difference. So just let me show you in Scripture. Taking you to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. This is Paul traveling. And it says this in Acts chapter 20. Verse 17, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him, right? So that's who he was speaking to. He was speaking to the elders of the church. I'm not going to look at everything he says, but if you look at verse 28, this is what he says to the elders of the church. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So the elders are also called overseers. We see that here in Acts chapter 20. I'm just going to take you to 1 Peter 5. You could read further there in Acts chapter 20 what is said to the elders there. In 1 Peter 5, Peter writes this, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God, that, so they're to shepherd, that could also be pastor, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So they're all three, elders, shepherds, overseers, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And then also just in Titus, close to our passage there in Timothy so you have these three or two places where it's specifically, what are the characteristics of leadership? There's 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1. Just bring your attention, Titus chapter 1, 5. Paul says this, this is why I left you in Crete, so you might put what remained into order. Right? God is a God of order. And appoint elders in every town as I directed. You just point out, every time you see elders, it's always plural. Like more than one. As I pointed to you, elders. So he's talking about elders. What are the characteristics for elders? And then in verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward. And then there's the list in between there. So I just want to show you, when we're talking about an overseer, we're talking about an elder, we're talking about a shepherd, we're talking about a pastor. It's the same thing within Scripture. There's not this differentiation made. So I hope you, that just very quickly, just want to show you that. I don't use the language of overseer. I don't think people would be too familiar with that. I use elder. It's saying the same thing. So that, that's the office. That's the calling. That's a leadership position. And you think if some people see them as descriptive terms, as in the pastor, that term, like kind of one of what you're called to do, to teach, to feed, an elder to rule over, lead, the overseer to care, protect. More start to think about the functions. So there's the office, there's 
what they're called to, and then the functions of the church, just touch on briefly. This passage doesn't really go there. But you think of the roles of an elder to teach and to guard doctrine, to give direction to the church, to make disciples and equip people to make disciples, discipleship, and also discipline to guard the flock of the church in that way. So that, that's a little bit about the function of the church, but again, this passage, or the function of leadership, but this passage doesn't go into there. It actually just talks about the character. So that's where we're going to stay longer. So again, go, going back to 1 Timothy 3, what does it say? It says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, like anyone? Anyone. So context would tell us, one within the, Within the actual Greek, the Greek of anyone is actually, uh, it's, it's masculine. So Greek words, they could have three tenses. It could be masculine, it could be feminine, it could be neutral. All throughout this section of scripture, it's all masculine. It's referring to males. Specifically, even as we see, as it talks about having the husband of one wife, it's very clear. And especially, it would be really confusing if anyone meant everyone. And just previous a few verses, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over men. And then just a few verses later, say, hey, anyone who wants this position can have it, and you're to teach. That would be contradictory. So I just want to show that. So even in the Greek, in this language here, this anyone is, is really for any man. And it's not just any man, but it does say this. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, aspire, strive for, desire. Like that, and it says, what does it say? It says that is a good thing. That is a noble task. I think part of it, within that church, they had so many false leads, leaders and false teachers, and people were shying away from leadership. They were maybe scared. They didn't want to confront. But there also maybe wasn't clear on, like, who should be a leader. If some of these false teachers are leaders and elders, like, is that who is supposed to be? So Paul's bringing clarity there, but he's saying, hey, this is what it is, but don't shy away from that. If you aspire to that, if you desire that, that's actually a good thing. So I want to hear that anyone who just like maybe has that in your heart, that that's okay, that is good. We should run towards that. And again, I just want to point out before we get into this list, this list is about less about what they should do and more about who they should be. It's about character. So starting the list, and I think this is just a statement and the list unpacks it, looking at verse 2, an overseer must be above reproach. An overseer must be above reproach. And I think the, less, the rest of the list actually articulates what does that mean to be above reproach. Here are the details. And above reproach, like not open to blame. If someone accuses them of something, it won't stick. William Mount says this, it cannot mean that an overseer must be free from any sin, eternal or, or visible, but the emphasis here on the type of external personal reputation. That would be a credit to the church. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, hey, follow my example as I follow Christ. An elder should be able to say that, hey, follow my example as I follow Christ. Not saying I'm perfect, not saying uh, I, I'm, I'm doing everything perfectly, but I'm seeking to follow Christ. And there's these characteristics I'm seeking to hold to. So there's this whole list of character traits that follow above reproach, positive, negative, I pray as we go through this list, we'll have our lives exposed. I know I have this whole week. And, and then what you do with that, you pray. 
Some I'm going to press into a little bit more. Others I'm just going to mention for sake of time. So first I want us to just look at the positive traits. In verse 2, there's kind of this list of positive traits we want to have in our lives. We want to run towards, if we can. We, we should desire these. Look at the first with me. So the, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. The Greek, kind of, it says a one woman man. It's the same we find in Titus 1.6. It's listed first in terms of importance. It's listed first in terms of importance. And what it is saying, though, it's actually talking about sexual purity. That's really what it's highlighting above all else, talking about sexual purity. Robert Yarborough says this, the Greek is explicit that the overseer is a male who, if married, has a female wife to whom he is fully, exclusively dedicated. He adds this, and, and I'd say this would be true, it would be overreading to infer that Paul required overseers to be married. Think about this, Jesus never married. Jesus would be barred from being uh, 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 an elder. Paul, it seems like Paul was single. So it's not saying that elders have to be married, but it's saying that they would have this single focus if they are married to their wife and their wife alone. So it's like if someone is single, if they could be an elder, they need to be sexually pure. That is what is being said here. Because the, the scripture, I just want to bring your attention to this, is right, it's so clear in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, it's called the sexual purity. I'm just going to turn to 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20. Paul writes this here. Flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20. Flee from sexual Immorality, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. There's this call, hey, like, I'm a Christ follower. I believe in Jesus Christ. I have a spirit within me. Okay, good, like, that means God owns you. You've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, hey, because of that, flee from sexual immorality. So I just want you to see this is call to elder to moral purity, but it's call for every follower of, of Jesus Christ. And we're like, okay, yeah, yeah, I haven't, I haven't had adultery. Again, I just want to maybe press down a little bit deeper. Matthew chapter 5, 27 to 30. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, I just want to read this to you. Jesus said this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And everyone's like, okay, good, I passed the test, I'm, I'm morally pure. And he said this, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. You think Jesus was like sugarcoating? You think he was walking around? He's like, this matters. It matters so much that you'd be better off ripping your eye out, cutting your hand off, deal with sexual purity. He's not actually literally calling people to do that. But like this is, he's making this statement. This is how serious it is. 
We see throughout scripture a call to sexual purity. We have so many warnings. We have many failings recorded within scripture. Of course the leaders are called to be held to this standard. Friends, in the, in the church, I, know I have too many stories of people I knew who were once in ministry. And like, hey, what happened to so-and-so? The phrase, ah, uh, uh, there's, there's moral failure. That's what we, there's moral failure. Friends, as we, as we read this, we see this call, I would encourage all of you, as I exhort myself, guard the little things in your life. No one runs headlong into idolatry, idolatry, sexual sin, but it's little compromises along the way. Letting your eyes linger where they shouldn't. Letting thoughts dwell longer than they should. Continue to take steps in that way. We need to flee from that. We need to put it to death. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. Lord, purify us. So we see this call to church leadership. The husband of one wife, we see this call next to be sober-minded, to be clear-headed, to be alert. It's not talking about sobriety, like don't be under the influence, but for sure that's included. Right, someone who's under the influence is not sober-minded, they're not alert. It's just, I even thinking as I'm coaching uh, kids in, in, in sports, and, and sometimes, or maybe as the night goes on and they're like playing a game and the one kid's off like running in that direction. And you're like, hey, 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 like get your head back in the game. It's actually, you gotta run over this way. That's kind of like being sober-minded, being alert, like keep your head in the game. It's a call, I believe, for all of us. Think about this in 1 Peter 5.8. Peter writes this, be sober-minded, Why? Be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Keep your head in the game. Be alert. Do you know what's going on here? There's a spiritual war going on. Souls are at stake. One writer says this, a leader must be one who thinks clearly. He must possess the inner strength to refrain from any excess that would dull his alertness. Right? You think of, of leadership we must know the time that we live in. We must know our church. We must know our people. We must know the season. We need to be alert. We need to be sober-minded. And of course, that's linked with the next one. We need to be self-controlled. Self-controlled. We need a good temperament. If you've been with us as we went through First Timothy, we've already seen this over and over again. As Paul writes to the women in First Timothy 2.9, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. And he ends in verse 15, again saying, and self-control. As, as Paul writes to Titus, he hammers that, this thought down in Titus 2.2. He said, older men are to be sober-minded, there we see it again, dignified, self-controlled. In 2.6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. It's a fruit of the Spirit. We find in Galatians, the fruit of self-control. Think about this, interesting, like as a, as a Christian, you have the Spirit, you have self-control, but yet Paul continues to exhort believers, elders, 
Women, men, be self-controlled. Even in 2 Timothy 1.6, Paul says, for this reason I remind you to fan to flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Like, why do you have to remind Timothy that? We need to be reminded, hey, we're, we are to have self-control. We have it by the spirit of God. If you just think about this, if, if we're not self-controlled in some areas, in those areas we don't have self-control, then we're dominated by something else. And if we're dominated by something else, we're distracted by something. Wherever we lack self-control, it can be in, in really good things, it can be really in bad things that we lack self-control. Maybe you're like a really good, have self-control when it comes to eating, but you're so focused on healthy eating, it's actually dominating you. Of course, we can be self-controlled with those gadgets that we have at the palm of our hands, or we cannot have self-control there, and it leads to distraction. But think about if we're not self-controlled in all areas, God help us, I know, Lord, help me. Then we're dominated and distracted in those areas. Think about it. We want to be dominated by the Spirit of God. We want to be distracted with the will of God in my life. How can I accomplish it? How can I glorify God? That's what I want to be so captivated by. Lord, give us self-control. Allow us to be sober-minded. The list continues on. Or to be the elders, the overseers are to be respectable. They are to have a good reputation. Right in 3.7, we'll look at next week, they are to be well thought of by outsiders. That's why even as we put our, our elders forward, we have elders installed at the start of September. They had their names stand for a month. I forgot to actually lead in with this. I had a, I had a friend who, who went to this, this church. He didn't do his homework. He didn't figure out what was going on there. But then it was a, kind of a smaller group. And then as he was calling people within the community to invite them to church, come and worship, they're like, I'm not going to go there. I know, that, I know your lead elder. He swears worse than any sailor I've met. Not respectable. We're also called to be hospitable. Hospitable, the, actually the root of this Greek word, it would be like loving strangers. That's a, actually at the core of being hospitable, loving strangers. We'd see this many places in the Bible. I'm thinking Genesis 18. Abraham's visited by, by the Lord, by angels. They come and they visit, and he's like, hey, like, Sit down, I'm going to wash your feet, we're going to get you some food. Like it's that type of hospitality that we see within the church, opening up your home to people. There's a huge part in the Bible, the big part is just entertaining strangers. That's one aspect of hospitality. I want to nail down the other aspect of hospitality, of of just having believers in your home. And just think about this, hospitality, opening up your home to others, those who don't know the Lord, those who do, what a witness it is in the age we live in. Like we were made, every one of us, made for connection with God and with other people. Online's not cutting it. We need face-to-face interaction. 
Hospitality is part of that. We need to invite people into our home. Acts 2.46, it says this. Think about having believers in your home. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. This is after like 3,000 were added to their number. So there was numerous people opening up their homes and they were breaking bread together. That's, that's hospitality. We see this throughout this call in the New Testament. I'm just going to read a few places. Romans 12, 13. Romans 12, 13, it just says this. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Again, in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 4. This is interesting. I'm just going to read from, I want you to see verse 9, but in, in verse 7, it says, the end of all things is at hand. What should we do? Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. There's that call again. For the sake of your prayers. And above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers over a multitude of sins. And it's like, okay, how are we to love one another earnestly? The next line, verse 9, show hospitality to one another and, he, and Peter adds this, without grumbling. Isn't that interesting? Peter's like, show like, love one another, so show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I'm not looking at anyone specifically for that. I just think that's interesting that the inspired word of God says, show hospitality without grumbling. Philip Towner says this, hospitality. Being hospitable, I'll just say that, is required of all Christians. The church leader would normally take up this responsibility and is therefore to be a model of this quality. Right? Where it's not so you only see the elders, the leaders of the church here. You actually go into their home and see what life is like. Like, not all the time. It's not like just this open door, but it is. At the, at the same time, I love, we've, we had people over at our home, we, when we got our house, we got a table. We got a big table because we want people around it. And I, and I don't know if this is to my cooking ability, having people over for a barbecue, that you guys, a church, many in here, bought me a smoker. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So we can have people over so I can keep chatting. And it's like, oh yeah, the burgers, I'm not going to burn them. You, don't, you can't really burn them on a smoker. Maybe you could. But it's real simple. But I appreciate that gift, being able to have people over and share food together. Hospitality. Friends, I just, I want you to just hear this. That's why I'm pressing this point. I don't know, whoever was at the potluck, it's just such a, a blessing to sit across from another, share food. There's a different conversation that happens with food on the table, and you stop what you're doing. We're going to have potlucks periodically from time to time. But the thing is, like, we meet at 10 a.m. Sometimes I preach too long, and you're going to be hungry when it's over. What, like, I don't know, it's a pretty easy step to like, hey, what are you doing for lunch? Come on over. So we need to be able to do that. We need to invite people into our homes. And I know maybe sometimes, maybe just coffee or tea is easier. It's easier to invite people for coffee. And I would just also just say this, too. Does, that, does everyone have a clean house? Everything's perfect? I don't know. Maybe there's someone out there who does. It's, it's okay. It's okay to have a mess. I know people are like disagreeing maybe with me. 
in their minds. But hospitality is inviting them into your home. It's not perfect. And we're not perfect. That's the beauty of hospitality. But I just encourage you, as, as, as leaders, we need to be about this. We need to be walking in this. And as a church, I, I hope we continue to grow in this. Next on the list, the ability to teach. Being able to teach. Skillful at teaching, being apt to teach. Interesting, this is the one skill listed under all the character traits. This is the one skill listed. So like, who should teach? Who should teach? We just had in, in 1 Timothy 2, we looked at, in verse 12, Paul wrote, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. We looked at God made us equal in value, different roles. So who is he calling to teach? He's calling men to teach, but he's not just calling any man. He's calling elder qualified men to teach, being able to teach. And what are they to teach? They are to teach scripture. They are to teach the word. They are to teach sound doctrine. I'm not giving you like five steps to a better you. I don't know. Maybe you know five steps that I need to hear, but I want to give you the word of God. That's what Paul called Timothy to, 1 Timothy 4, 13, until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. This is what we need to be about. In, in Titus, Paul says this. The call to elders, Titus 1, 9. The elder, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Teach, as in, as in defend and articulate the faith. Being able to teach is not, it doesn't mean you have every answer and knowing every detail of faith and doctrine. Who does? Like that's not what it's calling to, but being able to articulate doctrine, defend doctrine, when it says able to teach, I want to point out this to you. It's, it's not calling all to preach. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, we'll go there later, but it says this, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, like those who just devote themselves to doing that and that alone. There's some who are able to do that. I'm able to do that. I'm very thankful that that can be kind of my whole focus. And what I'm doing, for Roger and Dave, they, they're called lay elders. Dave sometimes has preached. Roger hasn't, but I don't expect him to unless the Lord calls him to do that. I don't see every elder called to preach, but called us to teach sound doctrine and defend it. Hope you can see that with me. But think about this as an elder, an aspiring elder, 2 Timothy 2.15, I want to give you this charge. It says, do your best, Paul writing to Timothy, do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Elders, future elders, anyone aspiring to that, we must know the word of God. We must study the word of God. We must be a person of one book. It's not like, oh, man, I know all these different stats. My favorite sports team, that's okay. I know all this different expertise in the job I have. Yes, you need to do that. But hey, we need to be about the word of God. 
Think about this, able to teach. How critical this was for the church in Ephesus. They had these strained teachings. Even Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1.3, he begins, as I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, so you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Not just anyone is to teach. And you can't just teach anything. How critical it is in our, our age. But then even with teaching, though, James 3.1, James, the half-brother of Jesus, gives us that warning, not many of you should presume to be teachers, because you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness, a greater judgment. Friends, I would just say this. If we cannot teach you the word of God, go somewhere else. And so we have these positive traits listed here. I spent more time. There's more positive traits I hope for all of us, though, we should aim towards them. We should seek to grow, and then we should ask God, work that in us. Then we have these negative characteristics. We don't want to have these. We don't want to run towards these. In verse 3, he starts with, not not a drunkard. The overseer cannot be a, a drunkard, not an excessive drinker. Right? You don't want to find your leader at the bar late at night drinking. In Scripture, there's so many warnings surrounding alcohol. Just think the first time we see it, when, when Noah comes out of the ark, he builds a, a vineyard, and he gets drunk. It leads to sexual immorality. Just the first time it appears in Scripture. Just draw your attention to a few of these warnings. Proverbs 20, verse 1 It says this, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a a brawler. Whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Isaiah 5, 22. It says this, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. You want to be good at a lot of things. You do not want to be good at drinking alcohol. That's not noble. So there's all these warnings within Scripture. We could spend a lot of time there. But I also want you to see in Scripture, it's not prohibited to drink alcohol. There's this tension. Jesus turned water into wine. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy, hey, have a little bit of wine for your stomach. It's not prohibited. But I'd also just say this. If you struggle with alcohol, if you struggle with drinking, please come and talk to to me, one of, one of our elders, so we can help you and pray with you. There's this tension. We're looking at this list, this list of holy living, and we, want to, we desire to, to walk in that, but we also need to be able to acknowledge that we actually all fall short in different areas. And there's grace. There's grace from the Lord. Even if it's sexual sin, if there's something that, like, oh, he talked on that, I struggle with that, I would encourage you, don't don't leave it in the darkness. Bring it to the light. Confess it to the Lord. Ask help from somebody else. So we, we we need to hold that tension. Seeing God calling us to holy living, knowing we fall short, and then we seek the Lord. And not having this, a, a culture, a community, I don't think we do, but hey, everyone put on a, a perfect face, a smile. All, all of us in different areas of our lives don't have it together. If that's you, I just encourage you, reach out. 
So not a, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. Is it not a, not a bully, not explosive? Next one, not, not quarrelsome. So I spent a little more time there. I, I think this is interesting that keeps being talked about within this letter. Proverbs 20, verse 3, it says this, it's an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. Wisdom literature, Proverbs 15, verse 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Think about not, not quarreling. It's already mentioned in the letter of 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, as Paul says this, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands. What keeps us from prayer? Without anger or quarreling. He's already, he's already talked about that. And now there can't be one who quarrels. He says this in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. That's... Not quarrelsome, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And just think about this with me. How does that work in the time we live in? Not quarrelsome. It doesn't mean we don't work through hard things. It doesn't mean we don't have areas where we disagree, perhaps even strongly. Not perhaps. (laughs) But I think as leaders, leaders, we need to take the lead to not be quarrelsome. And just think as, as, a, as a church, as Christians, do we want to be known as quarrelsome? Oh, there goes so-and-so. Don't talk to me about that. They always want to fight, always want to argue. Talking about important stuff. Of course, there's some unimportant stuff that we argue about all the time. I thought I was a big Toronto Raptors fan until I met Dave Meisner. Then I'm like, I don't even know if I like basketball compared to that. <laughs> so if you say something bad about the Raptors, Dave might quarrel with you there, but with gentleness. I'm joking. Sorry, Dave. <laughs> That's right. And then the last one I want to look at here in this list, what we do not want to have, not a lover of money. Not a lover of money, not greedy. Seemingly the false teachers were these people Paul addresses it quite significantly later on in the letter. In in 6.5, he talks about these people that are imagining godliness is a means to gain. Like if you're godly in the Lord, if you're a leader, you should get lots of money. They had this idea. William Mount says this. This is the first hint of what Paul will later spell out with absolute clarity. The opponents were teaching not for the sake of the gospel, but in order to make money. So we see this, this call to leadership that people would not be greedy. We even see it actually right near the beginning of Scripture in Exodus 18. Now if you, you remember the story, Moses, he was like trying to rule all these people who just left Egypt. He's getting exhausted every day, and his father-in-law comes and gives him advice. Why don't you set apart some men who can help to deal with kind of some lesser issues? And Exodus 18, 21, it says, these are the kind of men you should have. Moreover, look for able men from all people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and hate a bribe. 
right? That money is not going to pull them in. Money is not going to distract them from what they're doing. We see the same, I don't know if you heard that in 1 Peter 5, 2, when he talks about the call to elders. He, like rule over willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain. Not for shameful gain. Interesting, there's this, this document from the second century believers called the Didache. I probably mispronounced it, but there's all types of instructions. It's kind of like, what were they dealing with in second century as Christians? And they had instructions in dealing with teachers, with traveling people who came. And it says this, if they ask for money, they're a false prophet. That, that was it. Very simply, they also talked about hospitality, like as someone's traveling through, hey, they can stay at your place for a day if they need to, a second day. And they said, if they ask to stay a third day, they're a false prophet. <laughs> that was the teaching. I don't think you bring that into your hospitality, family members staying over. I don't know if that'll go over well. But uh, so this is what's already said. There already were people who are traveling around and hey, like, yeah, yeah, we're about the gospel. We'll tell you something. Give me something. Robert Yarborough says this, greed is inconsistent with pure zeal for God, the saving gospel message and the care of souls that should be the heartbeat of the overseer's inner life and therefore evident in his attitude toward income and spending. There's much I want to say here. We're going to deal with that more as we get to 1 Timothy 6. But I would say, hey, don't tell... Anyway, I would do this for free. <laughs> but praise the Lord, the time, the place that we have that I'm able to be provided by the church. Other people just need a full-time job and then what little they can on the side to proclaim the gospel. But don't take my word for it. Watch my life. If I'm a hypocrite, hold me accountable. We're, we're called to not be lovers of money. Not a lover of money, but a lover of God who richly provides for us what we need when we need it. Not a lover of money, but a lover of souls. Made in the image and likeness of God. This is what we want to be about. So when we see these negative traits, we don't want to pursue them. We don't want to cultivate them. We want to run from them. We want to turn from them. Friends, and just in kind of finishing this section of Scripture, finishing this message, I want to end with thinking grace alone. Kind of as I started, grace alone. What do you do with these few verses? Let me tell you first what you do not do. You don't strive on your own to be this person. Try harder, work faster, be better for the Lord. That's not what you do. First off, I don't know about you, this list should undo us. It should expose us. It should cause us to run to Christ. That is where our hope is to begin with. It's that Jesus Christ is our only hope. And from him we receive grace. means unmerited, undeserved favor. Like I, I come nothing and I receive everything, right? Faith in Jesus Christ. But that's how we continue the Christian walk. We see this call to holiness. How do you do it? How do you attain it? It's through God's grace. Through his unmerited favor. I hope it causes us to rely greater on the Holy Spirit as our sanctifier, the one who will do the, the work in us. We're praying, God, change me. And God will change us. Seek to grow here. And as Christ is formed in us, God will get the glory. Men, I hope as you see this list, 
You aspire to this. You seek to grow as a godly leader. You're like, Lord, do this work in me. Women, all of us, will we pray that God will form these traits in us. Sexual purity, like, yes, we're called to that. Sober-mindedness, self-control, Lord, do that in us. Be respectable, be hospitable. Yes, Lord. I see there's, there's this prayer list. God, do that in me. I hope, friends, you see the call to, to godly leadership. You see what the Lord has called our church to be about leaders, what we're held accountable to. And as you see that, please pray for us as elders. Pray for us as leaders. We need your prayers. We covet them. Think about how amazing God is, but the grace of God. Friends, I could, I could look through each one of these characteristics before I was a Christian, the opposite. I'm standing in the baptism tank, baptizing people because of the grace of God, what, they've done in, what he's done in their lives. That's the amazing thing. Just give all glory to God as we see this done in us. This is God's work in us, in our church. May we praise his name. If you'll bow with me as I close this word in prayer. Oh God, I pray you'd steal this word in our hearts and I pray by your spirit you would form these things in us, in each one of us, Lord. I pray in your grace and kindness if we, we have areas that were, have been exposed this morning. May we see more clearly our need for Jesus, our need to confess our sins, that we would turn the things we find in the dark, we would turn it to the light and lay it before you and seek your forgiveness. I pray you would help us individually as elders grow in these, form this in us as, as a church body. I pray you'd raise up more faithful men into leadership. Oh Lord, do this work in us and then we would just turn back and praise you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.